You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I am speaking with Joan Browning. She was one of the Freedom Riders in 1961. And instead of actually writing out an intro, I'm going to read from Raymond Arsenault's Freedom Riders 1961 and the Struggle for Racial Justice. There's a great appendix in the back of this book that has a roster of all the Freedom Riders. I'm just going to read uh, her bio from there. So born in Wheeler County, Georgia in 1941, Joan Browning was raised on a small farm before attending Georgia State College for Women in Milledgeville, from which she was expelled in 1961 after worshiping in a black church. Later active in civil rights and anti-poverty campaigns during the 1970s, she was an organizer for the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. She is a graduate of West Virginia State College, and currently she lives in Greenbrier County, West Virginia, where she is a freelance writer, lecturer, and member of the West Virginia Human Rights Commission. Thank you very much for joining us today, Joan. Thank you. I'm honored. Yeah, I mean, I spoke with you the last week or a couple of weeks ago, and we spoke for a while just listening to you and about your experiences, just connect so much with Lillian Smith, and of course is inspired by Lillian Smith. So, I mean, I guess we have to start there. You know, when did you first encounter Smith's work, and what kind of impact did it have on you at the time? But then as well, how has it continued to impact you as the years have gone on? I, uh, when I I got kicked out of Georgia State College for Women, I I moved to Atlanta, got an apartment and got a job in the library at Denver University. And then I began looking around to see what's wrong with going to church. I was naive enough that that was surprising to me. I soon met the, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee folks at that time, Jane Stembridge, who uh, was very, uh, always trying to introduce us to, to Leon Smith, um, Julian Bond, who was a great fan of Leon Smith, and, and then many of the others. One of the first things that I read by Leon Smith was probably her fall 1960 keynote speech to, speech to the students who had organized a temporary uh, coordinating committee, and at that, uh, on that occasion, they became the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And I was really impressed that this uh, older white woman understood that we were not just trying to, like Ella Baker, she understood we were not just trying to sit together on lunch counters, that we were trying to really overthrow the whole system of hatred that was running through the South. They didn't know it, but it was through the whole country. But we knew it was through the South. She got it that we were coming from a spiritual place. And uh, um, and she and Ella Baker were in agreement that we were not just putting ourselves toward this difficulty just to just to eat a hamburger. Jane Stembridge, as you know, visited Old Springer Mountain several times. And, and she came back one time and said that I had an invitation to come up to the mountain. But I was working 40 hours a week and typing press releases for Julian Bond and dating and, uh, <laughs> you know, being not 18, 19 years old. So I just never had time to go up to the mountain. And I, I do tell young people, the time is not going to come back. Take time, skip a date, skip a party, you know, go to the mountain. I was uh, drunk, and we passed around her, her writings. I didn't buy my copy of Pillars of the Dreaming until 1964, but we passed around, we passed around all kinds of books. And 
I think what struck me the most was that she was writing about me. I mean, she yeah. was writing autobiographically, but she was writing about my experience. You know, we, um, we, we were heavily involved in the Black church in the early days of the movement, but many of us had rejected the White church. They had, they had uh, sung to us every Sunday of our lives, Jesus loves all the little children, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. And then we got to be teenagers and realized the churches didn't mean it. They weren't serious about it. Lillian Smith was serious about it, and she understood that, that we had believed it, that we came to believe it, and can, we're acting on it. Can you talk a little bit, because you mentioned, I, I want to get to the question of, you know, continue how she impacted you and continues to impact you today, but you mentioned getting kicked out of the college in 1961 and then going to Emory. And I mentioned this when I read the the selection from Arsenault in here about, about you. Can you talk about that experience in, in worshiping the Black church with a friend or friends and how that kind of affected you? Because that is definitely one thing that Smith talks about is what you said, and especially in Killers, about the church saying one thing out of one side of the mouth, but then practicing something else, right? But can you just talk about that experience in 61 a little bit? Well, and, and like and like Lillian uh, and, and Smith and Killers of the Dream, it's children who see the hypocrisy. You know, we, we're not sophisticated. We haven't read Tillich and Newburn and all these people. We just see what people say versus what people do and see the difference. I grew up way out in the country, and the largest congregation probably was about 50 or 60 people. And with eight children, my family was a major part of every little country Methodist church. So we didn't have trained pastors except once a month. And so it was sort of homemade, uh, simple, very simple religion. The banner over the Sunday school that we saw every week was made by the women of the church when they first organized that church. And it simply said, God is love. And that is what we learned. That, that, that was the theology, was that God is love. And then, of course, echoing this child song, you know, Jesus loves all the little children, uh, reinforced that. When I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go to Georgia State College for Women in Milledgeville, Georgia, the Methodist Church, the white Methodist Church on the front side of the campus had about a thousand members. So the worship was really radically different. They used the same hymn books, but uh, it was not the same worship. Believe it or not, I got lonesome after falling in love with sidewalks. I got lonesome for something green and the art uh, professor had a house on the backside of campus, and he had a whole city block, but it had grown up except right around the house. He was going somewhere on a sabbatical and asked me if I would keep an eye on it, and I could sit in his kudzu jungle if I wanted to, but he wanted me to regularly look at that place. If there was a broken window or something, let somebody know. Well, in that kudzu jungle, I met an 11-year-old girl who had came, she came from a very large family and she went over there to get away from the other kids and read. And so I, we had our little reading room in the Kudzu jungle. <laughs> and one of the things I read there, because it was probably one of the first books I ever bought for myself, was a paperback version of Henry David Thoreau's Walden Pond. And that fed into my romantic notion about needing to see greenery and, you know, weren't sidewalks. Get into your romanticism of the kudzu jungle, this invasive species. <laughs> uh, well, it probably had some other weeds in there too, yeah. but there's a lot of kudzu. 
Uh, and in the back of that paperback, everyone I've ever seen has Thoreau's essay on the necessity for civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. So I read that at the age of uh, 18. This young lady invited me to meet her family, and uh, I did. And they invited me in to watch a World Series game in 1960 on a tiny little black and white TV. You know. And then the, the her father was a minister, and he said, we'd welcome you to come and worship at our church, which was Wesley Chapel African Methodist Episcopal Church. I did, and I it was much more like the informal, uh, warm and welcoming uh, worship that I had grown up with, rather than the more structured, stylistic, of sophisticated white Methodist church. So I worshiped there for some five or six months. Eventually, I, I told my uh, college roommate about it, and she said, well, that sounds good. And so she began worshiping with me. One morning, while the uh, University of Georgia was being desegregated, and uh, the chairman of the Board of Regents was paying students to riot and throw things at, at the two African-Americans who were desegregating the University of Georgia. The president of the college started getting um, anonymous telephone calls threatening the college and, and my roommate and me and threatening to burn that little church. He had the unfortunate name of Dr. Robert E. Lee. Dr. Lee called us into his office and told us we could not go. If we went back there again, the church would be burned. And so we really did begin trying to figure out what's wrong with going to church. The Wesley Foundation is the Methodist presence on the college campus at that time. Right. The director there showed us a notice that he had received about a conference in Augusta, Georgia, called the Payne College Student Christian Conference. And, and Payne College is an HBCU. Yes, uh, since uh, CME instead of AME, I had to learn that that's, that's different, but yes, it still is. So we went to, and this is a conference that Payne had been having against the law for about 30 years. It's against the law for white colored people to be seen as equals. So if we were going to go there and sleep in the dormitory and eat in the cafeteria with the Payne College students and, and the others, we would be actually breaking state law. We didn't know that. But we went to, to the Penn Conference, and one of the people on the uh, faculty that weekend was the Reverend James M. Lawson, Jr., who was really the guru of nonviolent civil disobedience. So here we are, these little innocent Christian students, and he's telling us the theology and <laughs> the, the why and the how and the why not now of the civil disobedience. So the Payne College students had been trying for a year to desegregate something in Augusta with no success. And when they saw how excited some of us were at Reverend Lawson's uh, presentation, they said, well, do you want to practice and see if you could be nonviolent? And so we had about a, a rigorous, about a two-hour practice session where some of us would play the segregationists saying bad things and, and uh, striking people. And four of us white students who passed uh, their test um, they said, well, why don't we go have a picket line? So we did. And in my notes from that weekend, I, it was called Operation X. And here's how you do Operation X. You know, I, I didn't understand which church to go to. So now I'm taking notes. I want to I want to get it down right. We went and, and picketed for a while and came back to campus. And the page students were just thrilled. They said, that went pretty well. Why don't we have a sit-in? So four of us again, white students, went with the Payne College students to sit in at the H.L. Green Drugstore. And we had agreed that we would do whatever the designated student leader of the day told us. So after about an hour of people 
walking behind white men walking behind us threatening and saying we're going to get you and all kinds of things pain leader came bill diddley came and said okay it's time to go now no matter what's going on when we get to the door as soon as you're outside turn right and run and there are people waiting down there to take you back to campus so the four of us got to, headed towards the door uh, one of the white men students from mercer was in front of us and as we got Opened the door, a Klansman took a knife and, and tried to stab Cecil. This pain student, Bill Diddley, jumped in front of him and got a knife in his chest. And as he was falling on the sidewalk, he yelled, run. And we had said we would, and so we did. We could look back and see Bill lying on the sidewalk with his blood puddling around him. When uh, Bill survived, uh, some people who were waiting to take him back to campus showed up pretty quickly and took him to the hospital. He just like Dr. King in, in, at his book signing in Harlem, if the knife had been just a few inches uh, different, he would be dead. But we were witnesses now, and we have to come back, testify at the trial. Bill Diddley, the pain student, was arrested for carrying a concealed weapon, and the Klansman was arrested for carrying the same weapon. We got to the trial, and people testified and, and had a mockery of a trial. And then the judge said to Bill, well, you've suffered enough, so I'll just dismiss the charges of carrying that knife in your chest. Carrying the, the knife in your, carrying the knife in your chest? Yeah, the knife was sticking between yeah. his ribs. That was his concealed weapon he was arrested for. And he said to the Klansman, oh, you're just an old blowhard, and he dismissed those charges as well. So by our first sit-in, it was clear that this was dangerous and that the courts were not your friend. But then when I got to, I, I wasn't technically kicked out of college. I was a scholarship student and they just revoked all. But uh, my mother gave me $25 and sent me to Atlanta. I got an apartment, $30 a month. Even then it was a slum at a good price and got a job in the library at Denver University. So I set out to figure out what's wrong with going to church. Found SNCC. And then you found Lillian too. I so got Lillian Smith, right? Absolutely. Probably that first summer, probably the summer I was 18. So that that's a lot. And the way that that impacted you kind of leads into my next question, because at the age of 19, I mean, you were 18 when that happened. And then at 19, you were one of the Freedom Riders. I think it's the last Freedom Ride, right? From Atlanta to Albany. Is that right? It was. It was. Uh, the people in Albany had tried six times to get compliance with the Supreme Court and ICC uh, rulings. And they finally called to the SNCC office in Atlanta and said, can you all come help us? And so that's how we came to have the, the can, last can, ride. Can you can you talk a little bit about or actually, can you talk a little bit about how you became involved in the movement? You kind of mentioned that right there. But if you want to expand upon it and about, you know, your experiences during that ride from Atlanta to Albany or. My, uh, my slum apartment was near Georgia Tech and was welcome at the Wesley Foundation on the Georgia Tech campus and met, met quite a few of the students. And one of them, Bill and I, he said, when, when they kicked you out of school, they accused you of being a member of all these things. Let's look them up and see what they have to do with you can't go to Georgia State College for Women. So we looked them up. We'd get in the yellow pages and we'd find the NAACP regional office and we'd call and make an appointment and go in and talk to this very sophisticated woman who didn't act as if she tolerated such foolishness, but she did for some reason. We'd say, what, what are you all about? And what's this got to do with Joan can't go to the church she wants to in this whole town? And we went through several of those. 
we never found a yellow page listing for the Communist Party. We don't know where those people hung out, but we never got to find them and see what's being a communist about. But we found the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And uh, and I was just home when I got there. I loved it. I spent every minute possible there. I was a good typist. And uh, Julian Bond would write press religious on this yellow paper, and I would type it up on stencils and make 50 copies and put them in envelopes and mail them off. And they'd be in the paper tomorrow. Mm-hmm. The New York Times and the Atlanta Constitution sometimes, just the way he wrote them sometimes. I was impressed. That, that, was, that was power. Uh, and I liked hanging out and partying with these folks. You know, love, they were so smart and they were so funny. And I learned so much from them. And I learned Lillian Smith from them. I learned about uh, Lillian Smith. And, and that was a tremendous uh, comfort to me to know that there were really sophisticated, educated white women who had preceded me in crossing the color line. And there, there's a lot of things you're talking about because what's really kind of catching me during your conversation and the stories you're relating is the age you are when these things happen for one. And, you know, the fact that these are formative experiences at 18, at 19, as a young college student and the ways that these experiences butted up against, even as Lillian talks about with her own experiences, the tradition and past that you grew up with, right? Yes. Your, your education and your experiences challenging what you've been told and showing you that, you know, that's not the way, this other way is the way to equity and equality and inclusion. So I think that's really kind of important. And it kind of reminds me something you went back to a second ago, too, where you're like, children actually know, even though they haven't read all this stuff, right? They know at their core, what's right and wrong, as Lillian talks about with, with Julie, the girl that the white women brought in and said, was white, and then took away from her family and said was black. And when Lillian's asking her mom, can I play with her? And her mom's like, no. Can she come over? No. Well, she slept in my room for three weeks. What's wrong now? She's colored. You know, just these terse answers. And she's like, I didn't have the words for it then, but I knew something was wrong. And I think that's really kind of important, especially if we think about this because of the way that we're educated culturally and then the ways that culture influences us, not just media, but, you know, our community cultures too. So following the Freedom Ride, you continued your involvement in the movement. And You talked to me some about this, about helping people, about providing them a place to stay and other things. And can you talk some about how your work during the movement after 61 or even, you know, during 61 placed you under the surveillance of law enforcement? Because you mentioned some of that to me. And can you talk about how your work during the movement impacted you as a young person, which you've been talking about some and looking back, how it continues to affect the way you see the world today, almost what, 60 years later, right? During the summer and fall of 61, I was saving my money so that I could afford to go to night school at Georgia State College of Business Administration uh, at night while working in the Library of Emory because I really wanted to complete my college education. I was working in the Library of Emory when uh, I went on the Freedom Ride, and uh, I, got, I asked my, uh, my supervisor to, to, if I could be away on Monday and Tuesday. He said, I'm going on down to Albany and I'll be back Monday and probably back to work Tuesday or Wednesday at the latest. Of course, I wasn't back for two weeks. When I got back, Emory uh, did not know what to do about it. There, I missed two weeks of work. So Emory paid me full pay and uh, let me work off the, the, the hours I had missed by reading the stacks. And some people think reading the stacks is boring, but it was one of the most fun jobs I ever had. 
to get to read every single title on the shelf. I did get to enroll in Georgia State College uh, uh, of the Business Administration at night school, and I tried taking full load at night and work full load in the day and volunteer in the movement. And it just, I, I, I didn't have enough time for all of it. So I dropped back to part-time student and continued to volunteer. SNCC had a field secretary whose job was to go to white campuses and try to recruit students, white students to join the movement. His name was Bob Zeller. And I traveled with him some. Uh, he, he tells a story of how the second or third time I went with him to Talladega College and HBCU in Alabama, mm-hmm. the students got all excited and said, let's go sit in at the bus station. And so we all went to sit in at the bus station and it had those brick glass bricks uh, and someone broke some of those glass bricks. So they were glass was shattering everywhere. And Bob says, uh, I told him when I got back, I'm not traveling with you anymore. You're going to get me killed. But I uh, occasionally would be uh, pulled out as a, Southern white female uh, to show people that you can do this and still be a person. Snick kept having meetings twice a year in Atlanta where everybody came together. And I would allow people to welcome people to stay in my crummy apartment because nobody had any money. So that was one, one way to help out. And I would go to some of the meetings, although not all of them, because after all, now I'm working full time. Snick people are paid $10 a week. And I can do that math. You know, I was making $225 a month. So I was rich compared to them. And I kept kept trying to be a student and work and volunteer and eventually just had to drop out of school. When I did that, I started taking full-time jobs in movement kind of things. And like at the Southern Regional Council, they had a job where they subscribed to all these regional newspapers and they would clip articles out and put them in file folders. And I thought that was great when I did that. And I worked on a, a project there called the Prison Reform Project. And one of my great fun jobs there was they were trying to research why it is that people would do the same crime twice, knowing the penalty. Uh, and, it, and the crime they were looking at was uh, stealing cars and crossing state lines, which makes it a federal crime to steal a car and, and go into another state. So I got to spend a lot of time in the records room out of the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, going through the records, seeing what it is about these these men who make them do this. One of the times when I was out there, they had a prison break and they locked down the prison. And everybody looked up and I looked up and I'm locked in this records room with some inmates. And so I can't figure out what to do. So I just keep going through the records. <laughs> and they did too. They said, we're in the safest place in the prison right now here in the records room. I still have my little identification badge that lets me into the Atlanta prison or did at that time. So there were things like that going around that were fun to do. Um, when the war on poverty got declared, I worked for the National Urban League because they got a contract to train VISTA volunteers. and They're now called AmeriCorps VISTA. And I enjoyed doing that and became the Southeast Regional Director of Training for VISTA. So no $10 a week for me. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm moving on up, you know. And, and then uh, one of the few things that I did during that time that's still going on is the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. And it was uh, lots of the Civil rights people were organizing economic activities around the cooperative model. And so the Federation of Southern Cooperatives was to be a, a help, technical assistance to these, an advocate for these people. And I was the second employee. Uh, when I was employed, we had one office in the basement of an office building in Atlanta that was 10 by 12 feet. 
and had one one table, one telephone, and two chairs, and that that was us. So I was there at the beginning, and that's how I got to West Virginia. We got a big grant, and so I got to choose my role, and I decided I, I like selling crafts made by poor people, rich people, and and helping people up their income. And West Virginia Institute of Technology talked to me several times and finally said, well, would you just come for one year? So I agreed to come up here for one year, 1969. And in that time, I was very taken with the, the uh, terrain and with the people. And I said, well, you know, if I ever leave Georgia, this might be a place to go. And after my mother didn't need me anymore, I came back and I've been here now 44 years. <laughs> so you mentioned that when SNCC had their meetings in Atlanta, you had people at your house. And I, I remember you telling me a story or a couple of stories about when you had, you know, SNCC members at your house or just individuals who were coming through staying at your house and the harassment you would get. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it, it was always an invitation to be evicted. I was evicted to, you know, Five times, I think it was. But uh, nonetheless, there was always some other place to find. Yes. You, you mentioned uh, police civilians. At one time, and it's in, the, in, in her story in the Deep in Our Hearts collection, Dorothy Burledge had a, an interracial party at her, her apartment, and she was evicted and came to stay with me for a while and wound up staying quite a while. She and Howard Zinn and Darty. Uh, Dottie Miller and others during the Cuban Missile Crisis, they went down to Georgia State College of Business Administration to a little Hurt Park in front of it, and they picketed with signs saying things like "Better Red Than Dead" because we were afraid that John Kennedy was going to start a nuclear war over the right. Cuban Missile Crisis. And and uh, we were told that the prime target and the greatest range of those missiles in Cuba was Warner Robins, Georgia, where the Strategic Air Command. Air Force had a base, but that if they hit one Robbins with those missiles, that the fallout would kill us in Atlanta. Right. And in fact, uh, the whole city went, you know, wild. They put these little signs on office buildings, you know, here, here's the fallout shelter. I went and looked at some of those. And, uh, you know, these were basement downtown office buildings with the cobwebs hadn't been swept forever. And I said, you know, I'm not going to die in one of those things. So I went and got my penny loafers resold. So I had good shoe leather. And my ambition was I was just going to start walking away from the nuclear stuff and walk until I died. But so these folks were down there picketing, saying better red than dead. And that was not a very popular thing. And I think that's actually what stimulated the two men in trench coats who spent the days for what, months across the street from my apartment that I was now sharing with these uh, anti-war picketers. And, and we, we suspected that they were Georgia Bureau of Investigation. We, we couldn't imagine why these, these men dressed this way would be standing in front of the live poultry uh, market across the street from my apartment. In trench coats. <laughs> in trench coats, winter and summer. <laughs> yeah, you, you've told me too. So you mentioned being evicted about five times because of these various things and you were also arrested during the movement too at least once that I know of and possibly more times so like what what happened with those situations well early on I was in a sit-in demonstration with others at a Woolworth store in Atlanta and we were all arrested I was the only white female at that particular demonstration when we got up to the Atlanta city prison you know we were separated by gender and by race and so I was the only 
white female. And when, when they took me up to the white women's you know, confinement area, the matron had a desk outside and she took one look at me and said, honey, you don't belong in there. So she had me sit like a teacher's pet beside her desk and I never even got in the cell. <laughs> we, we were out somehow within a fairly short time. So, so that's so that's kind of the epitome of white privilege for one thing. It sounds well, like absolutely, absolutely. Holy uh, crap. And you know, in some places, as some people talk about stories where the jailers took great delight in throwing them into places they don't belong, you know, so that they got great great harm done to them. But on that one occasion I, I was white matron's teacher's pet. And and then the last time I was arrested is not actually on my record anywhere. About 65, I had rented a garden apartment out near Emory on, on North Decatur Road. It was a garage and then behind it was a, a, a kind of a one room place. But it was really lovely. It had a great big deep yard and you couldn't see the house from there. It was just like my own little private terrain. I had been to, actually, I had delivered two Siamese kittens to a friend over on Hunter Street on the, the other side of town and had a couple of glasses of wine. And then I drove back about 10 miles across town to, and parked on, this, on the street where I'd normally parked. And once I was parked, the police came up and arrested me for DUI. Now, I had driven 10 miles and they had followed me a good part of that, probably half of that. So they hadn't seen any reason to pull me over until I got parked. Well, I, you know, they took me down and fingerprinted me and all those good things. And then an attorney came and got the charge dropped because they obviously should have pulled me over sooner if they thought I was dangerous. But that was my last encounter with the uh, Atlanta police. I got evicted from that place very soon thereafter because I was back taking one course at a time at Georgia State, and one of the African-American girls was in a domestic violence situation. So I said, well, look, it's not much, but come on, you can share my place until you get find a safe place. So she was there with her really cool Afro for a few days coming and going from my apartment, and the landlady said, we can't have that. You've got to go. Well, I had decided to get an Irish setter, and I knew I was going to have to leave anyway because she wouldn't let an Irish setter live there either. Mm-hmm. But it was a lovely yard. So, so let's end on this because I mean, you were you were very much involved in the movement with countless other people, and you mentioned some of them here. So, who were some other individuals and stories that you know we may not know? or that the majority of people may not know, myself included, like I said, that we need to remember when thinking about the civil rights movement in Georgia or just broadly, like who are one or two people that that we need to remember? We need to remember all of them, but who would you want us to remember right now? I I would really, if we're going to use that movement, teach us how to do things now to make things better now. I think we really need to remember the generation before the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. We need to remember, especially for young white people, we need to remember the white women who were there. Lillian Smith, of course. Uh, Dorothy Francis, Tillis. Dorothy, Dorothy Tillis. Dorothy Tillis, always. Margaret um, Long, Virginia yes. Um Stanbridge, even and, though she was... And, and Brayton. Yes. Those are the women who who made it possible for us, actually. They gave us examples and they gave us rationales for acting on our best uh, instincts. But they also fed us and clothed us and, you know, took care of us in, in all kinds of ways. I think we need to remember all of those folks. 
but always we'll never understand that movement without understanding Ella Baker. Ella Baker is just the, the shining light of the youth division of that movement. Anyway. Yeah, all of that. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about and we don't have the time to do it, unfortunately. So thank you for, for spending time with us today. And, you know, maybe we'll, maybe we'll do this again and, and talk more about this. Can I just say one more thing about Lillian? Yeah. One reason we need to, to study Lillian and these other white women, especially Lillian, one of, one of the often written about stories of the 1960 presidential election is about when Martin Luther King's in jail. And we don't ever tell the rest of the story. The rest of the story is that Lillian had been at Emory taking some more chemotherapy and had had gone to dinner with the, you know, the Coretta Scott and, and Martin King, and they were driving her back to Emory. And the reason that car was stopped, how did they look through there and see that his driver's license had expired? They didn't. They saw a white woman in the front seat of a car driven by a black man, and they pulled him over, and they kept searching until they found some reason. And they, and they, from what I understand, they ticketed him because he just moved back to Georgia, and they said he didn't have his Georgia license. He still had his Alabama license. That was why they ticketed him. But yet, they pulled him over because of Lillian. And I don't think we'll ever understand that that incident that everybody writes about until we understand that. And I got my revenge on Governor Vanderbilt a few years later when there was a, a session and I was invited to it about that incident. And it was all these people claiming who got Martin King out of reachable prison. I invited Donald Hallwell, attorney Donald Hallwell, to come to that meeting. He came and he was, he, he was almost blind at that point. And eventually I said, well, perhaps you'd like to talk to Dr. King's attorney at the time. And though he got up and told the real story about how Dr. King got out of jail and, and made all of Governor Vanderbilt and the whole crew of them look like ignoramuses, which they were. But anyway, that, that was a very satisfying moment. The whole, and, and we did a podcast with Paul Kendrick, who, along with his dad, wrote Nine Days about that incident in October. And he mentions Lil there, and there's brief mentions. Coretta mentions that incident in the spring very briefly, too. And of course, the sit-in started that spring. And this is, this is all stuff that I've been working through lately, too, with these connections. And she's very intricately involved with the movement from the outset. She is one of those first individuals, right? And she, Yeah, she was there in Montgomery in 55. Right. And so with that incident, going back to 55, the, the bus boycotts in 55, she writes to, to King in 56. And she says, you know, I support what you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing. She writes him one or two letters. And then he writes back and he's ecstatic to hear from her. And there's one thing in there that really stuck out to me that he said, he said, I've read you for a long time and now I'm glad to finally meet you. So her impact, not just on him, but that he has a knowledge of her, right? And then moving forward, like you said, in December, the anniversary, I forget, I forget the organization, but the anniversary of the bus boycotts, they both gave speeches. Lillian couldn't be there in person, but it was the right way is not is not a moderate way. Right. And then I forgot the speech that King gave. But then those speeches were republished in Phylon and the New York Times are republished as a pamphlet and distributed and then move forward. You mentioned that speech that she gave in 1960, that are we still buying a new world with all Confederate bills in October 1960, October 16th, 1960 at the SNCC conference, the first SNCC conference. Right. She's the yes. keynote speaker at that conference. Yes. And that is as they are preparing to do the sit-ins where King gets arrested at Rich's department store on that Wednesday. Right. And King wasn't there from what I understand. 
but she's very intimately tied to that. And I think it gets to the problem of what the SPLC says and what um, John Lewis, Andrew Iden, and Nate Powell say about, about March is the nine word you know, problem. Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream. And even the women before Rosa Parks, right? There's This isn't things that just come out of nowhere. There are these histories and intellectual histories that we need to think about. And Lillian Smith is definitely part of that. Absolutely. And and a prominent part of that. Exactly. Prominent. She was close to the Congress of Racial Equality folks who were active from the 1940s on. Yeah, she had, I mean, she had a split with them in the 60s before she died. But I mean, she was writing intros to jailed in pamphlets, to sit in pamphlets. She wrote the yeah. intro to James Peck's Freedom, you know, Freedom Ride, which you yes. and I found when we were talking before. Yeah. All of these types of things. She wasn't on the front lines. No. And she talks about not being able to get arrested. I mean, she did have breast cancer and everything too, but she was very much involved behind behind the scenes, I would say. Um, from what I understand, you know, she was writing Rustin about the the bus boycott when when it started in Montgomery. Um, she was writing Rich's department store. Um, she wrote the AJC during, of course, the sit-ins and the arrest, right? And then yes. from what I understand too, I don't remember if she connected with Kennedy afterwards. She actually wrote parts of, Ken- of, a, couple, of a few of Kennedy's speeches, one at the little White House in, in Georgia, you know, and I don't remember what, I don't know what parts of the speeches, but she wrote another part of another speech too. Well, and you know, part of that, that speech October 16th in Atlanta, it's talking about being prejudiced against Catholics. You know, she's making this point that that's just like all the other prejudices. It's just I found some of the I went through newspaper archives and there was a newspaper. There was a full page ad that people took out supporting Kennedy and her name was on it. And then there was an article against her against her support and others. I think in the Orlando Sentinel or something specifically that anti-Catholicism bent. Right. So, yeah. yeah. No, she she was there even the way for us when we were just toddlers. And and you say she she was not on the front lines. There there was no behind the scenes. Right. You, know, you were known, and to the extent that they could, you were punished. Yeah. And when and when she I mean punished. when I mean front lines, she wasn't marching. That's what I mean. Yeah. Right. Yes, you're totally right. Well, I, I understand now. I can't stand up long enough to march now, so I do a lot of writing letters. <laughs> it comes to us. Well, thank you for joining us. That, it was a pleasure. And like I said, hopefully we'll be able to catch up and do this again sometime. I'm here. Thank <laughs> you very much. I appreciate it. And thank you for carrying on Lillian Smith's legacy. Oh, we need to know it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about Lillian E. Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.